Well, as we get started, I, I do want to just extend a, a big thank you to Pastor Carl Raymer, to Deacon David, and to Justin Horst for all of their work in making this uh, uh, hopefully a really beneficial day for everyone who's here. Um, at our last retreat, which was, I don't know, three, four months ago, uh, the topic was the rule for Anglican Christians as uh, articulated by Martin Thornton. Martin Thornton was an English priest. And that rule consists of three facets. The first is that a good, proficient Anglican Christian attends Mass on Sundays and red-letter days as dictated by the Book of Common Prayer. He, also, he or she also does the daily office, morning and evening prayer. And in addition to that, the proficient Anglican Christian has a robust private prayer life, usually developed in conjunction with some kind of spiritual director. Given the significance of the daily office to Anglican Christians— I thought it would be appropriate for us to discuss these canticles that are used at the offices of morning and evening prayer, the Benedictus, the Magnificat, and the Nuc Dimittis. There are more canticles as listed in the prayer book, but all these three come from the gospel according to St. Luke, and they are what I would consider to be the primary canticles of their respective offices. Now, of course, these canticles are not unique to Anglicans, but we have inherited them. Um, Each of these canticles featured prominently in the monastic tradition uh, in their various offices, which they would pray throughout the day. In fact, in the monastic tradition, they're praying seven different offices throughout the day, um, which is a little bit more than most of us can do. One of the geniuses of the Book of Common Prayer was that it it brought the monastic tradition to the secular layperson, to the person who couldn't be a monastic, to the farmer, to the miller, to the common person. This is not the first time it was done. In fact, Thomas Cranmer, uh, as, he, as he designed this, looked, was, drew heavily from, from cathedral prayers in Spain where they had, had done something very similar. They simplified and condensed the number of offices for the lay people in order for them to participate. And of course, Thomas Cranmer didn't set out to reinvent the wheel as to how we pray the offices, but rather he wanted to streamline the offices that already existed in the Western Christian tradition. Um, so, for example, Matt, I saw him earlier this morning. He had the monastic diurnal out, which is, a, which is an older form of prayer in the Western church, one that would have been used by the monks. And if you pick that up and you prayed the, through the, the morning prayer and, and some of the other offices, the Compline and the evening prayer, in that you would be able to find a number of parallels and very close similarities to what it is that we do at morning and evening prayer together. But these canticles that we are talking about today really are, the found, are foundational to Western Christ, Christian spirituality in general, but more specifically to Anglican spirituality because, because of the fact that more lay people were praying the offices in the Anglican tradition than were praying offices in other traditions in the West. So let's specifically talk about the Benedictus for today. And, and I think first we might want to look at some of the, uh, some of the structure of the hymn. This hymn has also been called the Song of Zechariah. For those of you who may be a little unfamiliar with the opening of the Gospel of Luke, you know, the, the, it opens with Zechariah, who's a priest, and his wife, Elizabeth, who have been unable to have children. And all of a sudden, uh, as, as Zechariah is doing his priestly duties, an angel comes to him and tells him that he's going to be a father of a son. And Zechariah is then struck with dumbness. He can't speak. He has to write on a tablet what John's name will be. And so it's kind of a miraculous event that, that this happens. Um, and, of course, we know that the child will grow up to be John the Baptist, a very important figure in the biblical tradition. So this song of Zechariah, really the, the voice of the poor of the land of Israel, 
is heard, the so-called anawim. It opens with the praise of God and typically Jewish words and forms. In Hebrew, it would read something like Baruch Adonai Eloi Yisrael. The canticle celebrates the salvation that has been wrought by God for his people and describes John the Baptist's future role in God's plan of salvation. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. That is preceded by the enumeration of the divine wonders surrounding John the Baptist's birth and naming. Right? The whole canticle is given to us in response to Zechariah's neighbor asking the question, well, what will this child grow up to be? And so the canticle gives us the answer to that question. I would love it if uh, somebody asked me what my boys will grow up to be, and I could answer in some beautiful form of poetry like this. Hopefully not bums is probably what I would say. (laughs) The actual structure of the canticle is in the form of a hymn of praise, the form of a hymn of praise. And I believe your your handout kind of lists this out explicitly. So there is an introduction praising God, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, And then the body of the hymn is made up really of verses 68b through 77, which lists three motives for the praise, beginning with the term because or for in verse 68, and that's followed then by three strophes. So strophe one lasts from verses 68b to 71b, for or because he hath visited and redeemed his people, that section. And then the second strophe uh, consists of verses 72 to 75, to perform the mercy promised to our forefathers. And then the final one begins with, and thou child shalt be called the prophet of the highest. So three sections there. And then the final portion of the canticle, its conclusion lasts from 78 to 79, um, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. These, when they structure uh, in, in the Hebrew, when they structure uh, things like this, usually the meaning of, of whatever that, pe- that poetry is, is found in the very center. And here, uh, because the, the three strophes, the, it's really the center of the center that's the most important or, the, or really highlights what this canticle is about. To perform the mercy promised to our forefathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath which he swore to our forefather Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. There are three actions of God listed here, right? Perform the mercy promised to our forefathers. Remember his holy covenant, the oath which he made to our forefathers, These three actions of God result in this idea of deliverance, which is paralleled by the response of serving. So God does something for us, he delivers us, and in response, we serve him. The center of the whole canticle, really, if you think about it, what is our deliverance? What is our deliverance? What is it that Zechariah is pointing us forward to? It's nothing else other than the person of Jesus Christ. He's the very center of the hymn. He's the deliverance which God has wrought by his son who fulfills all the promises that are made in the Old Testament. Every single promise in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And so John the Baptist then is a very important figure. I mean, uh, it's even, Jesus even says this at one point, that no one is greater born of a woman than John the Baptist because he stands as the bridge between Old and New Testament. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's preparing the way for the Lord, like the prophet Isaiah said. The hymn then comes to its denouement, its final resolution in verses 78 to 79, God's visiting, verse 68, and his deliverance, verse 74. The verb has visited us then appears again in verse 78, this time as the subject of the verb, or this time the subject of the verb is the day spring from on high. Now that phrase gets translated different ways in different translations. I like the day spring from on high, the King James and the the way the prayer book lists it. But sunrise is how the NAS translates it, or the rising sun is how the NJB translates it, dawn in the NRS, the day in RSV. But day spring really, I think, gets us to the, the clear meaning. It's a clear reference to Jesus. He is the day spring from on high. Um. And so in this way, Jesus is being identified and coordinated with God himself. So the canticle is really ultimately and unflinchingly Christological. It's about Jesus. It's blessing and giving thanks to God for what he has accomplished for us in his son, Jesus, the Messiah. The promise made to David and the oath made to Abraham. What is that in reference to? Well, in David's case, God made a covenant with him in 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 through 16, that David's house would be established forever, that they would always be on the throne. To Abraham, God swore that that he would be a blessing to the world. Abraham would be a blessing to the world. In you, all nations of the world shall be blessed. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And of course, interestingly, the New Testament goes out of its way multiple places, multiple times to connect Jesus to both Abraham and David. I mean, we might think of the very opening of the gospel according to St. Matthew, Matthew 1.1, where it says that the genealogy or the, the generation of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Then the canticle goes on to mention John the Baptist in verses 76 to 77. He is the child who is the prophet of the highest. He is the bridge between Old and New Testaments. All this while Zechariah is calling Jesus dayspring from on high. He brings light, thus realizing God's visitation, right? The visitation is the first half of the canticle and his mercy, which is, about this, which is in the second half of the canticle. So the salvation wrought by God through Jesus is in total continuity with Old and New Testaments. Old and New Testaments form one book. And the theme of the Bible as one book is God's salvation of the world. Part and parcel of that then is the response of the people who are saved, serving God through a fearless life of holiness and righteousness. And so the canticle stresses a major theme of the Bible. Our sinfulness radically separates us from God, and God's work brings about forgiveness reuniting us to God. I mean, we can think about the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament, which points us forward to the final and complete sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary. The author of Hebrews picks up on this. The Hebrew priests stand day after day making sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice as if the blood of bulls and goats could forgive sins. But the blood of bulls and goats can't forgive sins 
And so we have a high priest in the order of Melchizedek who is both priest and victim. And so sin in the canticle is described as being in darkness because it's that separation from God. And our salvation is in the coming of the light of the day spring from on high. So to highlight this unity between Old and New Testaments, you might see on the handout that he listed a couple different connections um, between uh, Old and New Testament here, between the Benedictus and, and some Old Testament passages. So, for example, in verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. Zechariah is clearly drawing from Psalm 41.13 and Psalm 72.18. 41.13 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting and to everlasting. Amen and amen. 72.18 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who only doeth wonderful things or wondrous things. Verse 69 of the canticle, And hath raised up a mighty salvation for us in the house of his servant David, is an allusion to Psalm 132.17. There will I make him the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. Verse 71, to perform the mercy promised to our forefathers and to remember his holy covenant, references Psalm 18.1, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. Verse 72 is an allusion to Genesis 17.7, I will establish my covenant between me and thee, this is God's words to Abraham, and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Verses 73 and 74 have allusions both to Genesis 26.3 and Joshua 14.14. In Genesis 26.3, Sojourn in this land and I will be with thee and I will bless thee for unto thee and unto thy seed will I give all these countries and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. Joshua 14, 14 says, Hebron, therefore, became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, unto this day, because that he wholly followed the Lord. That we being delivered out of the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear. Verse 76 also points us back to Joshua 14, 14 as well. And finally, uh, well, not finally, uh, penultimately, in verse 78, Zechariah 3, 8 is in view. Zechariah says, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Now, if you, that's the Hebrew translation, but if you read the Greek translation of that same passage, instead of saying branch, it actually says, my servant, the day spring. So we're drawing from the, the Greek there when we use that, or when we use that translation, or at least Zechariah's drawing from the Greek, which makes sense. In verse 79, Psalm 106.10 is quoted. And he saved them from the hand of him that hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. So it's clear, Zechariah, and this makes sense, right? I mean, Zechariah is a priest. He knows the Old Testament like the back of his hand. I mean, at that point, that would have been his only scriptures, right? There is no New Testament. And so it's clear, not only in Zechariah's mind, and of course, we've been talking about this at our Acts Bible study too, when you look at the way the apostles preached it was heavily, heavily drawn from the Old Testament. And the point is, God has one plan for salvation. And it runs through Old Testament Israel and their history. And it culminates in the person of Jesus Christ and his work. And it continues today in us, in the church. 
And so the canticle celebrates the coming of the king, the return of the king, or actually the first coming of the king, and it prepares us to receive him. John the Baptist, in his role, the role that his father prophesies of him, fulfills Malachi 4.5, the last book of the la- with the last verses of the Old Testament in both the Protestant and Roman Catholic canons. It reads, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And I think there's no accident that when they were establishing the order of the canon, they put that at the very end. Because as soon as we open the, the New Testament, we get John the Baptist. So this canticle describes the steps in the way that God brings about salvation, the preparation, forgiveness, a new walk in life. And all three of these phases lead to this ultimate stage of peace, shalom. To be prepared, we must know who this God is who sends the one who prepares the way. He's not a passionless God of the Gentiles who sits far removed from us in calm detachment. He's not the God of the pagans who's always trying to conquer all the other gods who lives in chaos, who's really an amplified human being. I mean, if you read the story of Zeus and Hera and all them, they're just large human beings, usually very childish. He's also not merely the God of the Old Testament who gives us the law. He is the God of the Old Testament. He does give us the law. But he's not someone that we relate to through sheer submission. Rather, he is the God of sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. Sin is not merely doing wrong. It's more radical than that. It's estranging and alienating ourselves from God. And that leads us to the forgiveness that he accomplishes. Forgiveness is not merely the release from a penalty. It's the restoration of a relationship that's been broken. And in this restored relationship, once we receive that great gift through the sacrament of baptism, we embark on a new walk of life, buried with him in death, raised to walk in the newness of life. And that new way of life is lived in the ways of peace, shalom, Not the mere absence of conflict, but the fullness of life, right? Uh, You know, we hear a lot about eternal life in the scriptures, eternal life. And we often think of duration. You know, you're going to live forever and ever and ever, day after day after day. And that's true, but it's also a quality of life, right? Eternal life is now. You experience eternal life through the new life that you have in Christ. So the apostle describes this fullness of life in the New Testament in Galatians 5 as the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So a couple takeaways for us today, I think, from this particular canticle. The first is that it's important for us to recount and reflect on the great deeds of salvation that God has wrought in his son, Jesus Christ. This is why it's important for us to know our Bible, to read the scriptures, to meditate on them, to chew on them, to really absorb them, make them part of us. It's also why we use a lectionary. You know, I don't preach things that I want to preach. We preach the lectionary because if I only ever preached what I thought was important, we wouldn't get the whole counsel of God. But the lectionary walks us through salvation history and each season is dedicated looking at different facets of the gospel story. Right? We're about to embark on Lent. We'll begin with the 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness. Think about what that means. We'll get, to East, we'll get to Holy Week where we think about his passion and his death. 
We'll get to Easter where we think about his great resurrection. And we'll spend time meditating on the 40 days that he spent with his followers after his resurrection. And then we'll get to the ascension, his going up into heaven. We'll think about Pentecost, when the church is born, when the Holy Spirit descends. And we'll think about the mystery of the Holy Trinity. So the church calendar and the lectionary that comes with it really confronts us with this. And if we're really paying attention to it, you know, year after year, we, we celebrate these same feasts and, and we begin to understand them deeper and better, right? It's like, it's like you know, you, you go through all this one year and then the next year, things have changed. You're not the same person you were a year ago. And so we go through those mysteries again and again and again. And they're always re- relevant. They're always evergreen for us. So we need to be recounting and reflecting on the great deeds of salvation that God has wrought in Jesus. And I think this ties very well then to to a kind of individual application, right? It helps us to reflect on what God has accomplished for us, specifically in our individual lives. How has God's grace impacted you as an individual, right? This is where we get the idea of testimony. Someone being able to stand up and say, this is what God has done for me. That requires us to be self-reflective. It requires us to think about our lives through the lens of the gospel, and finally, you know, it's important that we, we give thanks to God for what he's done. Not that we just petition God for things. Of course we can petition God. We should petition God, right? Anytime you talk with someone you love, you talk about what do I need? What, what do we need? You know, what's important? But also it's important that we just spend time giving God thanks for all the great gifts that he's given us, especially our salvation. I mean, try that sometimes, every maybe once a week. Sit down and just say, what am I thankful for? And start writing lists. And what you'll find is once you start writing, it's hard to stop writing. It changes everything. And finally, it's important, I think, this canticle pushes us towards the practice of confession. I mean, as Anglicans, we do this constantly, right? Morning and evening prayer. Both, both offices have a prayer of confession. The Holy Communion service has us pray a corporate prayer of confession. Further, we make it optional for people to make a private auricular confession to the priest if they need to. And so confession really is about a rhythm. It's, it's living into this story. It's recognizing that we have fears, that we have a lack of holiness, that we often lack mercy in our dealings with other people. And so we constantly return to the moment of our baptism. We constantly return to the grace that God gives us to forgive our sins, to restore us, and to help us keep going. He gives light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of peace, and he guides our feet, in the shadow of death, and guides our feet into the way of peace. Are there any uh, questions? Um, I think that's about all that I have for this this one. Um, Any questions about uh, the Benedictus? Yes, Henry. Uh, the canticle? We know, uh, well, the, I mean, it's in St. Luke's gospel. Uh, Saint, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about the history of St. Luke's gospel for the Magnificat. Because I think that what we know about St. Luke was he was a very careful man, probably a doctor, uh, seemed very rigorous in his research. He was not present for the events as they were happening. So he comes later after he converts and he wants to establish uh, an account where he's, he goes through and actually interviews eyewitnesses. My theory is that one of the biggest eyewitnesses that he interviews for the gospel is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And, so, uh, and that would kind of make sense 
as far as how we know about Elizabeth and Zechariah and this song and the visitation that Mary makes to Elizabeth and all that. So I imagine it comes through that somehow. Um, And as far as its liturgical use, we know pretty early, I think I was reading somewhere in the third century at least is is the first record we have of it being used liturgically. But it probably, I would imagine, was used before. We just don't have very much data in the first two centuries, especially when it comes to liturgy. We have very, very little. Um, and so it seems like this has always been a prayer of the church, um, which is cool to think about. I mean, when we say the Benedictus together at morning prayer, we can think Christians have been doing this for 2,000 years. It's really cool. Thank you. Anything else? Well, let's take another maybe five-minute break, kind of stretch our legs up, and then we'll out, and then we'll do um, we'll do the Magnificat as our next presentation. So, thank you. <laughs>